0: Turn with me for the final time to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be picking up at chapter 24, verse 36. the Church Bible, that's page 1062. Before we look at this, let's just... Pray briefly again. Father, we believe that what we have in front of us is a living word from you. And so we open our Bibles expecting to hear from you. And I pray that you will speak to us this morning. You will speak to us wherever we are and exactly according to our need. Help us to hear from you clearly. And give us the strength to obey and to understand what you speak to us. Amen. Last week we left the disciples discussing an amazing new development. In recent days they had seen Jesus crucified. They had then found an empty tomb several days later. Then the risen Jesus had appeared to two of the disciples First he joined them as they were walking to the village of Emmaus, then he was recognized by them as they were eating together. Luke described that appearance for us, and we also heard about another appearance. When those two disciples hurried back to Jerusalem, they were told that Jesus had appeared to Simon Peter too. So we pick up this morning with all the disciples back together in Jerusalem discussing these things. Chapter 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is God's word. This final section of Luke's gospel teaches us two truths. First of all, Jesus' followers have been given all the evidence they need. And second, Jesus' followers are part of one great story. First of all, in verses 36 to 43, Jesus' followers have been given all the evidence they need. In verse 36, Jesus appears standing among the disciples and he says, peace be with you. Now, on one hand, this is a normal Jewish greeting. But when Jesus gives the greeting, and when he gives it in this context, it has a whole new significance. Jesus has made peace with God possible. When he came to earth, he stepped into a situation where there could be no peace between us and God. Our sin meant that God and humanity were enemies of one another. There could be no peace until the issue of sin was dealt with. But now Jesus has done that. He offered up his life on the cross as a sacrifice to pay for our sin. Those who accept what he has done can be reconciled to God. There can finally be peace between the creator and his creation. So as the one who has died and then risen from death, Jesus can say, peace be with you, in a way that no one else can say it. When Jesus says it, it's not just a wish or a hope. He is truly able to offer peace. When we come to Him, we can be at rest. We can be delivered from the unease that's in our hearts. And all of us experience restlessness and discontentment in our hearts. We can try to solve it in a thousand different ways with chemicals with achievements, with human relationships, entertainment, new experiences. We can try all of those things. But the testimony of millions of people is that none of those approaches will deal with our discontentment. In fact, the unease in our hearts just increases. And the reason that none of those things can deal with our problem is that they're not really addressing the heart of our problem. Our real problem is God. Specifically, the fact that we are not at peace with God. Only the risen Jesus can solve our God problem because he made peace with God on our behalf. When we come to him, we can enter into the peace that he has brought about. So, Jesus' words in verse 36 are not just a throwaway greeting. They're the best news that you or I are ever going to hear. But look how these disciples react when Jesus appears and says, Peace be with you. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. They're not exactly in a state of peace. Again, we're seeing something that we noticed last week. None of these disciples were expecting a resurrection. They were the farthest thing from gullible people looking for any excuse to believe in resurrection. Before Jesus arrived in the room, back in verse 34, they were saying to each other, it is true, the Lord has risen. But even still, they have trouble accepting it. It goes against the grain for them, just as it does for people today. In fact, they're more willing to believe they're seeing a ghost than that they're seeing Jesus raised to life. And that's true of many people today. They'll believe in spirits and ghosts and auras and visitations from long-gone relatives. But talk to them about Jesus rising from the dead and they'll dismiss it as being unscientific. But look how Jesus reacts. He doesn't react with anger. He doesn't say, I give up on you people. You just need to believe and stop looking for evidence. No, he patiently gives them all the evidence they need. Verse 39. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Look at my hands and feet. It really is me. I have the marks of a crucified man on my body. Touch me, he says. I'm solid. Your hands don't pass through me. Watch me eat, he says. Could a spirit eat solid food? Jesus is saying, I know you're skeptical. Of course you are. You're not idiots. You know basic biology. This is not normal. But Jesus says, put all the evidence together. I look like Jesus. I sound like Jesus. I have nail marks on my hands and feet. You can touch me. The evidence says that I am Jesus. Jesus who died and is now alive again. It's not normal, but it has happened. Jesus is giving these disciples all the evidence they need to believe in the resurrection. And they did believe. They didn't jump to it. They weren't falling over themselves to believe. But in the end, they had to believe what their eyes and ears and hands told them. They couldn't avoid the evidence. And Jesus went to great pains to convince these disciples, not only so they would believe, But so you and I would have good reason to believe today. Jesus came to do a once for all work. Once for all time. So by definition, he could only come to one time and one place in history. That meant he could only be seen and touched by one generation of people. But that generation would then be called to bear witness to what they saw and heard. They were called to bear witness for the benefit of all generations, all times and places. And these disciples would bear witness by speaking and by writing about what they have seen. In their own time, they will carry the gospel across the world. And then they will carry it to all times through these written documents that make up the New Testament. As Jesus appears in this room in Jerusalem, as he shows his hands and his feet, and as he sits down to eat, he's not only giving the people in the room all the evidence they need, he's given you and me all the evidence we need. We can read their accounts. We can see how skeptical men and women, men and women like us, came to be convinced The Apostle John began his first letter by saying, That which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. John knew the evidence Jesus provided wasn't just for him and his friends. It was evidence they were to share with others. They were to proclaim it. And this is why Luke starts his gospel off with these words in chapter 1 many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Through the appearance of the risen Jesus, and through the eyewitness accounts of those appearances, you and I have been given all the evidence we need to believe. Our faith is a reasonable faith. It's not a blind faith. Yesterday I read an article, and the author was claiming that having faith is incompatible with being a thinking, reasonable person. You can't have them both. Faith, she said, means locking your brains up in the cupboard. People of faith, she said, are irrational. They're unscientific. That's a very common claim against Christians today. Now, there may be people who do take that approach to faith. Maybe they do turn their brains off. But that is not the kind of faith the New Testament calls us to. We should never talk about just needing to have blind faith. God has provided evidence. He doesn't ask anyone to have blind faith. We make our decision about the resurrection the same way we do with any other historical event. We make it on the basis of the written evidence of the time. If we refused to believe anything unless we saw it personally, we would believe in almost nothing at all. None of us were there to see Hannibal crossing the Alps with his vast army. We weren't there to see Mary, Queen of Scots, getting her head chopped off. But we believe those things happened. We believe it based on eyewitness accounts. We can be just as confident about the resurrection of Jesus as we can about those other historical events. Our faith is a reasonable faith. Yes, we still have to put our faith in the things we read in the New Testament, but we've been given good reason to put our faith in it. There's no other adequate explanation for why fearful, skeptical disciples turned into fearless preachers of the risen Jesus. Fearful skeptics don't change their minds because they feel it's the right thing to do. They change because they have been convinced by good evidence. So, if you're a Christian, your faith is a reasonable faith. Don't buy into this argument that faith is for people who have turned their brains off. We've noticed that Jesus' followers were to proclaim what they had seen and heard and touched, they were to carry it across the world. And that leads us into what comes next. Verses 44 to 53 show us that Jesus' followers are part of one great story. Some of you hear the word story and maybe you think of made-up stories, things that aren't true. But I'm using the word story here in the sense of a chain of events that are all connected together. Look at verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus wants to show these disciples that their connection to him makes them part of a story. But it's not a new story. It's a story that's been unfolding since the beginning of time. The Jews divided what we call the Old Testament into three sections. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And in verse 44, Jesus says all three sections point to him. The Psalms were part of the section known as the writings. Now, he's not saying that every chapter and verse is directly prophesying about him. His point is that the whole Old Testament points to him. He's the great subject of the Old Testament, he's the center of the mosaic. The other parts of the picture are there to highlight him, they're there to display his significance. Another way to put it is that the momentum of the Old Testament is pressing towards Jesus, his arrival and his work. Later on, the Apostle Paul would put it like this in 2 Corinthians All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. When you're reading the Old Testament, it would be good to have that verse on a bookmark in your Bible. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. In other words, the story these disciples are part of didn't begin with Jesus' death and resurrection. It didn't begin on the day he called them to follow him. It didn't even begin the day he was born. The story began in the mind of God long before creation, it began to unfold in the Garden of Eden. And the promise to Abraham and the exodus from Egypt, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the entrance into Israel, the kings of Israel, and the exile, all the visions and the messages of the prophets, the return from exile, all of it is one great story. It's a story of God's worthiness, his majesty, his love and his salvation. And all of that story, says Jesus, was leading up to the, event, the events that you disciples have been part of. Now even though these disciples knew the scriptures, they certainly hadn't thought of them the way he's describing them here. So verse 45 says, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. They knew the scriptures, but they didn't understand them. They didn't understand that the amazing things they'd been part of weren't some separate story. They were part of the one ongoing story of God's dealings with creation. It's really important for you and me to see this too. The things we find in the Old Testament are not obscure stories. Obscure stories about Middle Eastern nomads. Nomads. Or tribal kings. Prophets with fiery sermons about nations that have disappeared. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that way about the Old Testament. But if you and I belong to Christ, the Old Testament story is our story. It's our history. And parents, it's so important to help your children see this. Teenagers, When you find it difficult to live for God, read about Queen Esther. She's your sister. Read about David when he faced Goliath. David is your brother. The God who was with Esther and David is the same God who's with you. Lots of people are into researching their ancestry. It's a very big business. Megan and I saw a program recently where J.K. Rowling was trying to track down her ancestors over in France. But the New Testament shows us something so much grander than that. It shows us that those who are in Christ are part of the one great story of God and his people. God's promises to his people are for us too. And all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. In Galatians, Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Earlier, we sang one of Graham Kendrick's songs, and he does a good job of summing up the fact that in Christ, we're part of God's story. He says, by faith, a child of his, I stand, an heir in David's line, royal descendant by his blood. Destined by love's design. Fathers of faith. My father's now. Because in Christ I am. And all God's promises in him to me are yes, amen. Why is this important? Well, aside from making the Old Testament a lot more significant to us, it's important because the story we're part of is an ongoing story. It's still unfolding. It did not end with the resurrection. In verse 46, Jesus mentions his suffering. That's in the past. And his resurrection. That's in the past. But then in verse 47, he mentions the next installment of this story. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus was born in a small nation. He lived his whole life in a small geographical area. The work that he did on the cross was done on a pretty obscure hill outside the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not a major city in world terms. But the work that Jesus did was for all nations, for all areas, for all cities. And so the news must be proclaimed to all nations. It must be carried around the world. That's the next part of the story. Look again how Jesus describes it. He says, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name. That's in Jesus' name. Repentance and forgiveness go together. When we repent, we turn away from our sin and toward God. And this is to be preached in Jesus' name. Because if you and I are going to deal with God, we'll deal with him through Jesus. God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the one mediator between God and humanity. He's the one go-between. So we repent by turning away from sin And toward Jesus. We find forgiveness by stretching out our hands to Jesus. Recognizing that without him we have no hope. Our hope is in Christ alone. Forgiveness is not something we earn. It doesn't come to us by doing enough good deeds. Giving away enough money or going to church enough times. Forgiveness comes through trusting in what Jesus did when he hung on the cross. He died in our place. He took the punishment due to us for our sin. So that's the message that's to be preached to all nations. It's the next stage of God's plan. And the amazing thing is, God has chosen Jesus' followers to carry it out. He didn't choose to send angelic messengers around the world with the gospel. Men and women will do the work. That's what Jesus says in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Now obviously these first disciples had a unique part to play. We've noticed before that only one generation in one place could be eyewitnesses of what Jesus did. These men and women have had that unique privilege. Now they're to write down and to preach what they've seen and heard. The rest of the story is going to begin, verse 47, at Jerusalem. And as they go, Jesus promises to give them the power they need. Verse 49, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. He's talking here about the Holy Spirit. God had promised that in the Old Testament through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The Holy Spirit will supply the power they need as they carry out their mission. In the book of Acts, Luke will describe the arrival of the Spirit. He will describe how God pushed the disciples out of Jerusalem because they were a bit reluctant to get started. God used persecution in Jerusalem to launch them out to all nations. The book of Acts is volume 2 of Luke's book. Volume 1, that's this one, has described what Jesus began to do and teach. Volume 2 describes what he continues to do and teach through his followers. Acts tells us that in this Original group with Jesus, there was about 120 people. And they did have a unique part to play. But the story certainly didn't end with this 120. You and I are part of the story too. We are to point to Jesus, we are witnesses. And for some of us, that might mean going to another part of the world. But for most of us, it won't mean that. It will mean being a witness to Jesus at home, at school, at work. And for some of us, being a witness might mean standing up and preaching. But for most of us, it won't mean that. It will mean living lives that show what a difference Jesus makes. That doesn't mean we try to fool people into thinking we're perfect. Most of us couldn't fill anyone with that idea. No, we show what a difference Jesus makes through our willingness to admit our mistakes and our flaws, to ask forgiveness, by showing that we don't need to fight to defend and justify ourselves. We know God has accepted us. We show the difference Jesus makes by being willing to forgive others as God has forgiven us. We show what a difference Jesus makes by living out the reality that he has given our lives a purpose that goes beyond making more money or owning more stuff. Showing that we have a security that's not based on our bank balance or our popularity. Showing that we have a hope for the future that goes beyond death. Hope that gives us strength to do good and to serve others now even if that means we suffer and lose out in the short term. We're called to live lives that show what a difference Jesus makes. And when we have opportunities to speak to others about him, then we take those opportunities. We take them trusting the Holy Spirit for the strength and the words that we need. That's how the vast majority of us we will play our part in God's ongoing story just by living faithful, obedient lives, speaking up for Jesus whenever we get the chance. It seems like nothing spectacular. But if we take it seriously, it is spectacular. We're playing a part in God's one great story. We're not looking back on a story that's over and done with. We're in the story today. If every Christian took this calling seriously, if we saw the importance of little daily acts of faithfulness, just a few words spoken about Christ, backed up by a Christ-honoring life, if we took that seriously as a calling from God, who knows what impact the church could have on England? Tragedy is when Christians decide they have no part to play in the story. When they decide that the Christian life consists of trusting in Jesus for salvation and then getting on with serving themselves. But don't you see how sad that is? To miss out on the honor of our calling? Being a witness to Jesus' work and power is not just for the professionals. It's not just for the preachers and the missionaries. You're the people who have the daily opportunities. So let's all of us recognize that we have a part to play in God's ongoing story. Let's think of ourselves as witnesses. Let's be aware of what message our lives are sending to others. Let's be alert for opportunities to bear witness with our words to others. And then notice how Luke's gospel ends. Verse 50 When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Jesus had made it clear that after he did the work he came to do, he would return to heaven. Remember what he told the Sanhedrin at his trial From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Jesus' followers couldn't have done what he did on the cross. None of them could have died for the sin of the world. But with the Holy Spirit's power, they will do the rest of the work. They will spread the news of what Jesus did. They will call others to repent and find forgiveness by trusting in Jesus' work. And so Jesus leaves them. Now, he will still be with them by his Spirit, but he won't be with them physically. He goes to reign over this world from God's right hand. To intercede with his Father on our behalf. Verse 50 says that as he leaves them, he pronounces a blessing on them. It's an encouragement when someone pronounces a blessing on us. But it's on a whole different level when God the Son pronounces a blessing on us. He's assuring his followers that God will be with them. God's favor is on them. And verse 52 says, they worshiped him. It's the first time in this whole gospel we've been told that they worshiped him. The pieces of the jigsaw have finally fallen into place for these disciples. They finally see Jesus for who he is. Not just a good man or a teacher or a prophet, This man is God. He is to be worshipped as God. And as they worship him, they obey him. He had told them to stay in the city, and that's exactly what they do. We're told they do it with great joy. Obedience is something they are delighted to do. And their worship and joyful obedience is the pattern for us to follow. We noticed a few weeks ago that the temple in Jerusalem is obsolete now. God showed that by tearing the curtain of the temple. From now on, the church will be God's temple. Not a church building, but the believers themselves. God will live among his people by his Spirit. That new temple was set up in the book of Acts. When the Spirit came upon the disciples... And today if you and I belong to Christ, the New Testament says we are living stones in God's temple. But these first disciples are still waiting for the Spirit and so they wait at the old temple. And so Luke's gospel ends in exactly the same place where it began. Chapter 1 took us to a gloomy situation. An old priest, Zechariah, was serving in the temple. We were told that his wife Elizabeth was barren. And the situation for God's people seemed to be barren too. God had been silent for hundreds of years. He seemed to have abandoned his people, he seemed to have forgotten his promises. But in chapter 1, God broke his silence, he spoke to Zechariah in the temple. And now the gospel ends outside that same temple. A lot has happened since God broke his silence. He has taken action. Through Jesus, God has opened up a way out of the gloom. There's a way for sins to be forgiven, for men and women to be reconciled to God. This book began with sadness and barrenness. It ends with worship And praise and great joy. Yes, the story is still to be continued. It will continue in the book of Acts. It continues today through your life and mine. So the story is not over. But everything has changed since chapter 1. We've been following Luke's gospel for 47 weeks. Most of you have been here for a good number of those weeks, but now it's over. Luke has shown Jesus to us, his birth, his words and actions, his death, resurrection and his return to his father's side. You and I have seen all we need to see. None of us can claim to be ignorant about Jesus And so all of us have a response to make. We have to decide where we stand. Are we with him? If we're not with him, we're against him. If we are with him, then he demands everything from us. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. He demands our worship, our obedience in all areas of life. But what he asks of us is nothing compared to what he promises us. So, where do you stand? Will you acknowledge that you're among the sinners Jesus came to save? Will you set aside your pride and come to him for mercy? Will you worship him as the risen Lord? If you count yourself as a Christian, will you play your part in God's plan? Will you take the news about Jesus into your own unique situation? Will you point to Jesus in your own unique way? Whatever way God has gifted you to be a witness for him. It's time for all of us to decide where we stand. And the final two songs that we're going to sing challenge us first of all to come and worship and then to hear the call of the kingdom. If you'll stand with me please.